everybody, and welcome to the Medevac Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Myers, joined by our other host, David Reed. Hello. Uh, before we hop into today's episode, please keep in mind there is a price for the show. You have to share it with a friend or family member. If you've listened before, you know this is a rule, and please continue doing it. But it's greatly appreciated. Not many people are commenting and asking questions, though. Now, we do have a great guest that you can ask lots of questions to today, and a new producer behind the cameras. Patrick is back. Welcome back, Patrick. Patrick is back. Who's hey, our Patrick. Who's our guest today? Marcus Mater. Howdy. Howdy. Mater. Welcome. It's a powerful name. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Marcus is a uh, 21-year Air Force veteran. He's been a uh, TACP or Tactical Air Control Party. Got that right, right? That's right. All right. Party. <laughs> it's been a attack fee for the last 21 years, uh, currently serving uh, in the San Antonio area. And uh, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for being here today. Excited to be on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, before we get into what a TACP is, because I, I want to dive a little bit deep into that, because the other day we covered that a TACP is not a tactical P where you take a knee. You can take a TACP. Am I? That's true. Yeah, you can yeah, take a tech. Yeah, a tech. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's lead up to this. <laughs> We're going to set the tone right now on how this episode is going to go. So let's dive right into, you know, my favorite question is why you joined the military, how you found yourself in your branch, and why tech P is a career choice. Right on. So uh, I'm a military brat. My dad did uh, 21 years. He was a, a nuclear weapons specialist for a, a portion of that and then a, a comptroller uh, at the end of it. First of all, what years was he a nuclear specialist? Oh, geez. Uh, 80 to, to mid-90s time so frame. So like, you know, kind of flirting with the Cold War a little L- bit. A little bit. About, about the time they were getting ready to use them, right? Yeah. right. <laughs> uh, he actually just left the nuclear enterprise uh, right before we decided to fly one across the country. Uh, so, yeah. and how was that growing up with that kind of high speed career? I mean, that is got to be a lot of hours he was gone. So, so it was, um, to be honest with you though, like I didn't, I didn't know the difference. You know, mm. he, he wore the uniform, he went to work, you know, we got to visit his office. Yeah. yeah there's a huge missile in here <laughs> that uh, can do, you know, some terrible things, but cool, let's go hang out and play softball afterwards or, or whatever the, the thing was, you know? Yeah. I as guess a, I didn't, go ahead. No, as a kid, did you want to see that rocket go off? Probably. Ah. Uh, or did I mean, he explain probably, it? No, it was it was definitely clear that that's not one that you... Uh, yeah, you like, want to see. Yeah. <laughs> Deterrence is the idea with these things. We don't want to actually have to use them. They just have to uh, sit and look pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It... Uh, he just knew he went to work. That was mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I had an appreciation back then yeah. for what it was that he was doing. Sure. So. You mentioned uh, losing a nuke. That's, uh, uh, do you know this story? You know, the Air Force lost, has lost more than one. Well, I guarantee that most of our audience does not yeah. know this. So story. there's a couple different so stories. The one you're talking about, I'm, I'm assuming late 80s was when they loaded a, uh, they thought it was a dud, but they loaded a live round and flew it across the U.S. That's right. <laughs> Accidentally, they loaded a live nuclear weapon. <laughs> there's also been, oh. yeah, a, a couple that have gone missing from plane crashes when they were being transported. Yeah, there's just nukes sitting out is there. there. A, is that a no comment look right there? Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> this is not my field. Yeah, this is like 40 years ago. They're oh, probably long recovered. Declassified. But yeah, yeah, obviously. it's popular. <laughs> At this so that, point. Had to, that had to be pretty, pretty crazy growing up in that environment. You were moving a lot probably. Or did he... Was he kind of stationed at a specific research facility? So no, we were we were uh, 
about every four years, mm. we were on the move. Mm-hmm. Uh, got to do some unique stuff back when he was in. Uh, Turkey was available for dependents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I spent four years of my life uh, over in Turkey. Uh, we got evacuated when the Gulf War kicked off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was, I think it was January 11th, something like that. First thing in the morning, you know, dad called the house, said, don't send the kids to school. We were on a C5 that night, headed home. Damn. Uh, back wow. to the States. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely interesting. Sets the precedent early too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old were you when that evacuation took place? So that was what, 91? So I was nine years old. Okay. And how did that feel? I mean, was it a pretty controlled evacuation or was it erratic and you knew something bad was going to happen? So when he called, uh, we could, we could kind of sense that something was going on. And he's like, man, put them, put the kids up in the closet. Let's figure out what's going on. Interlick was within striking distance from Saddam. So, uh, I think he was panicked, but we were like, man, this is weird. Like, what are we doing? We're, mm. we're hiding in a closet. Okay, let's pack some bags. And then, uh, you know, I didn't realize it until we got out of, you know, a certain airspace that, and we were escorted by F-15s on the way out. Like, it was that important Damn. that, uh, you know, I was like, shit, I wanted to see the airplanes. Like, <laughs> somebody could have told me they were out there. That would have been cool, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it didn't really dawn on us. Like, oh, okay, we're headed home. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, back home for about six months while they're figuring out what's going on over there. Mm. Nine years old, that's got to be a pretty impactful age to be just spun up and evacuated by C5 and jets accompanying you out of the country. But it wasn't, right? It wasn't like... Because you didn't realize. It wasn't like the alarms were going off and everybody was rushing us and this, that, and the other. Explosions going off in the background. (laughs) No, it was like, hey, we're going to go home. We're going to go on vacation for six months, pack your bags, you know, we'll we'll see you later. You know, I had a younger brother who's... uh, I have a younger brother that's three years younger than me and a younger sister that's three years younger than him. Mm. So me and mom are basically trying to, to you know, herd the kittens <laughs> through the airports and things of that nature to get home. Like, I remember that carrying, you know, being strapped with two or three bags because you had to carry the diaper bag and this yeah. and that. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, that's obviously the, it was impactful. Like how many memories do you have at nine years old? Not many. Yeah. I right. mean, yeah, uh, not, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Yeah, nine eleven. I was ten when nine eleven happened, so that was yeah, and that and that's probably the same age. Yeah, the significant memory that you have at that mm-hmm. age. Yeah, yeah, um, which makes means that's terrifying. <laughs> you know, that's right. You think about it. You weren't old enough to be terrified, which is which is good. But uh, but that's crazy. That is an insane story. And I I went off on on a little tangent on that one because that's super interesting. So you grew up in that atmosphere. And do you think that that contributed to your inspiration for going into the military? Yeah. So I think the entire time I had a, an idea that I was going to go into the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had flirted a little bit with architecture in high school. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there was an idea that, you know, let's go into, you know, uh, the collegiate realm. Let's get some architecture type stuff done. And if that works out, cool. But uh you know, the entire time there was a plan to do ROTC and, and mm. to have the military as an opportunity uh, okay. when it was all said and done. So, sure, that makes sense. Yep. And the branch choice. Yeah. So, Dad was Air Force, right? So we we stuck with the Air Force. Okay. He's, you know, absolutely. Hey, you're not going to the Army. You're not going to the Marines. And I was <laughs> like, okay. Uh, and, and Dad, man, he was one of those guys that when I told him I was going to become a TAC P, he's like, you know, the Air Force has a lot of like air conditioned jobs where you can sit <laughs> in an office and like. <laughs> yeah not necessarily have to dodge bullets. And I was like, yeah, dad, that doesn't, that doesn't sound 
yeah. exciting at all. So. My, my thing is, I always tell people, go into the Air Force if you plan on thinking about your future outside of the military. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, trade skills. Well, then I go out, right? So I joined the Air Force and I picked the one job, you know, one of few jobs that spends all its time with the Army. Yeah. It goes and plays G.I. Joe. So, yeah. Yes, I got that the best was, of both worlds. That was your loophole. That was your way around. Right. And what did your dad say to that? You know, he didn't really. He uh, just supportive. You yeah. know what I mean? That's you know? amazing. And, and you come to find out that even after 20 years of combat, people still have a hard time understanding what Air Force Special Warfare is, mm-hmm. what Attack P is. Like most of them, you know, they... You see a BlackBerry walking across the base. Most people think it's a security forces guy. Yeah. You know, so uh, I don't know that he necessarily knew what I was getting into when I got into it. Gotcha. That's so fair. Why don't you tell us what Attack P is? Yeah, so Attack P uh, is is a member of the uh, Air Force Special Warfare Branch, right? The, uh, as as mentioned earlier, Tactical Air Control Party. Um, man, our, our big bread and butter for the last... 20 years has been uh, dropping bombs on bad guys uh, in support of some sort of maneuver element, right? Whether it's uh, the Army, the Navy, you name it. Like our job is to go out there in support of the Air Force, right? Like we want to make sure that the airplanes get into the fight at the right time, uh, in the right way, and hit the right guys. Really, that's what we've been doing uh, for the last 20 years. But man, we are are such more of a capable force. You know, we we bring a lot of command and control uh, to an environment. You know, all the chaos that's happening, when you think about an airstrike and the the three-dimensionalness of it with, you know, stacking airplanes, dropping bombs through airspaces. Oh, yeah. Uh, which guys do we want the bombs to hit? Which ones do we not want them to hit? And then the timing in which you do it, we're just kind of the, uh, the puppet master out there getting after that stuff. Um, but, yeah, we, uh, so that, that's been what we've been doing for the last 20 years because that's what the nation's been asking us to do for the last 20 years. And sure. And now like everybody else, we're starting to shift our focus to what, what does the future look like mm-hmm. uh, and things of that nature. You know, people have lots of theories, whether there will be, you know, boots on the ground or not have boots on the ground. Yeah, is that's it gonna my be, next question. Is it going to be drones? Is it going to be manned airplanes? Like what does the future look like? Yeah. Um, and what's the benefits of having boots on the ground? Yeah. So that's, that's the deal, right? Planes flying at 30,000 feet, going 450 knots, trying to drop a 500-pound bomb uh, onto, you know, this barrel right here. Yeah. And it's hard to do that. Um, it's hard to do that in a permissive environment, let alone you get into a semi-permissive or denied environment. friendlies on the ground, too. I almost got uh, murked myself by a JDAM. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> For one dude, by the way. Oh. Yeah, so that was a... Paying for the buck there. Hard uh, <laughs> yeah. taxpayer dollars at work. <laughs> yeah, so, so that story's pretty it, right? great, though. It, it's funny you bring that up because that's that's the other portion of us being there, right? Like, it's to be able to put the right munition mm-hmm. or use the right tactic at the right time, um, you know, to, to do we want to get into a fight and draw these guys out or is the mission to get through this thing so we can get on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. Like being able to, to bring that air power and, and basically, we, you know, we'll say anything that flies, whether it's artillery, helicopters, you name it. Uh, if it's in the air, we're going to have some sort of say in it uh, sure. to, try and, to try and get the job done. That makes sense. You're talking about different types of munitions and it brought something up. I was reading, uh, I saw an article last week about uh, the Moab bomb <laughs> that they dropped a couple years ago. And they were yeah. kind of delving in a little deeper into it and like the significance of its use in combat. It's only been used like a handful of times. 
Yeah, I, I'm tracking the one that was, I think it was dropped in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only one that, that I would even be able to think about recalling. Yeah. What, what is the difference there between something of that magnitude versus like a traditional JDAM or, or well, like when, when are you making those decisions to, to like when you're evaluating your targets, right? What is the determining criteria to step it up a notch to into something of that magnitude? Or is that even a, a call that you're making on the ground? So generally speaking, that's not. That's going to okay. be some sort of, you know, strategic effects. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about that bomb going off, the Moab going off. Yeah. You're talking about cities disappearing, you know, potentially, right? It's that so, big, yeah. Uh, well, and, and Afghanistan's got small cities too. Yeah, like, it's sure. not like we're trying to take out Kandahar with the, yeah. the Moab. But, San Antonio, yeah. Um, you know, that's that's the strategic decisions that's getting made well above, uh, you know, our, our levels. Well above attack P, right? To call in that sort of firepower. That, or, that's right. Or do you have those assets on the ground as well helping facilitate that mission? So, so at the end of the day, right, like it starts with the desired end state, right? Mm, yeah. And if the desired end state is that this is a, you know, terrorist training camp and there is nothing good about it and we don't yeah. want it to be here anymore. Yeah. We push that desired end state up the chain and it gets to the right decision makers to go, hey, let's pull out the the Moab and, and go ahead and do this thing. Because um, it could just as easy be, hey, you know, we want we want 12 2,000 pound JDAMs to yeah. get rid of this thing. And maybe that's the easier, the easier button. You okay. Know? So really it's it's less about uh being particular and saying, hey, I want this munition. Like we weaponeer a little bit, but we've got some really smart people that weaponeer in in ways that a guy on the ground could never think of potentially. Yeah. We give them a desired instinct. We want this thing to go away and they give us the munition and and how uh, to employ that munition to make that thing happen. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, I was curious if that was just a call made on the ground or if there was like a whole strategic back end to that. That's, oh no, that's that's it, much larger, right? Like you don't just pick up the phone and go, hey guys, send, send a Moab out here. We're yeah, going to do this. Yeah. So. No, I was, yeah, I was curious about how those decisions were made because I mean, dropping a bomb of that magnitude, I mean, obviously <laughs> they're still talking about it a couple years later. It, it obviously made a significant impact, you know, making decisions like that. But I digress. Um, sorry, I went off on a little tangent there. No, that, those are great questions. Yeah. I think... Uh, just kind of in addition to that, a question would be like, what are your like max capabilities without having to go up the chain like that? Like, is it like end at JDAM level? Like if I'm boots on the ground and I call this in, it's going to happen. What's the max? Yeah. So, so generally speaking, it's going to, a lot of it's just going to be driven by what's available to you, mm, okay. you know, yeah. so assets in the air. It, it's, and there's, I mean, we could go into to hours about how the system works and, and this, that, and the other, but you know, there's, there's two two kind of main brackets, if you will, right? There's pre-plans. Hey, we know that we're going out there. We've got the the intel that shows that this guy is in this building. And, you know, if it gets to the point that we need to, to do our thing, yeah. we will need, we'll need these munitions, okay. right? And we ask for that days in advance so that mm-hmm. you get the right plane at the right time with the right munitions to do what you need to, right? The other side of it is, uh, man, maybe you were out just on a reconnaissance patrol and mm-hmm. next thing you know, you're in a fight and they're in a hardened structure. Yeah. Man, what are we doing? Right. So, or, or what can we do? Right. And, and that's where, you know, we tell them what's going on. And man, that there are people in the, the command and control realm that will go out and find that guy. Right. So, yeah. you know, the plane may have launched on your mission because you guys were going out to do that thing we were talking about. And now we're in the fight and we need that thing. Like we will take it and we will re-roll it and push it over to the guy that needs it. So okay. um, sometimes you just get what you get, right? So, hey, man, maybe it's four JDAMs because you need to level the compound and get out of there. 
um, or, or four five hundred pounders versus a two thousand pounder, mm-hmm. or um, or you're trying to figure out, you know, hey, there's a school that's X number of meters away. We can't have any effects hit that thing. Yeah, it's better that I come off with a few of these smaller bombs that have a, a smaller footprint than go with the big one that is potentially going to have some some theater wide effects. Okay. Gotcha. That makes that makes a lot of sense as uh, as you explained it in that that manner. But anyways, not to not to get too deep into what it's like being a tech P, but I wanted to get back onto the chronological aspect of your career specifically. So, what year did you actually end up joining? So I uh, so I went to the University of Tennessee for a year after okay. I graduated high school. Uh, tried to pursue the architecture thing like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Tried to pursue a little bit of football. Um, did ROTC really ROTC was the only thing that I was knocking out of the park uh, and the university very politely asked me not to come back for a third (laughs) semester. Uh, so it was, it was time to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Whoa. Oh yeah. Let's stop there. Partying too much. What, what's the reason? Oh yeah. I had, I had, I think less than a, a a one GPA. Like I, this was not what I was at college for. Yeah. You, You were not there to educate yourself you didn't so it was kind of like check the box hmm. it, it, it was um i didn't have any struggles with high school like i was the kind of guy that could sleep through class and still pass with an a uh and thought i was going to be able to take that work ethic uh to college <laughs> and uh and and it was going to work and turns out it was uh it was an expensive lesson yeah fair um although met my wife there uh so lots of lots of positive from the one year of uh, so an even more out. expensive lesson i got <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah we're there um i get a contract to come in as a uh 53 gunner so i'm gonna be oh. on helicopters my mom worked in the recruiting squadron you know i had kind of the ends on when kicker bonuses were coming oh yeah you know you i i got the the you know white glove treatment when you showed up you know what what job do you want? Like, mm-hmm. hey, we'll find it. Okay, you just have to wait three months to go kind of thing. And then, uh, yeah, school ended and uh, I moved in with my now wife at the time. Uh, and about three days later, I moved out and decided <laughs> that, man, I needed to get in the military like yesterday. So mm-hmm. uh, they pushed up my contract. Uh, I had talked a little bit with a guy that did the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athlete stuff uh, while we were at UT. I didn't mention like, hey, you know, combat control looks interesting, this, that, and the other, you know, not necessarily excited about the swimming portion of it. I never really practiced for it. He said, well, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, there's, there's this tech P thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I uh, didn't, didn't think about it. Right. Just figured I'd be successful at, at CCT PJ type lane and left, uh, got to basic, uh, turned my paperwork into be an F-16 crew chief. Cause at that time you couldn't come in as a guaranteed tech P. You could come in open journal. You could come in and some certain things. Yeah. But that was one of those that you had to volunteer for once you got there. Okay. So I think it's week three. Uh, I don't remember. Week three or week four, you pick your job. Mm-hmm. I'd sign my paper. You know, uh, I'd consider putting nuclear uh, down, you know, let's follow in dad's footsteps. Uh, I was counseled that even if I put that as my ninth job, I was going to get it because there's not a lot of people that are putting <laughs> nukes down. Yeah. Uh, so I very quickly scratched that from the list and uh, went back to the drawing board. Selected F-16, got picked to go be an F-16 crew chief. Okay. And then we got the recruiting brief uh, from the TACP guys. Um, I had gone to take the pass test. I did the underwater. I swam about 25 meters and I was like, this is this is not for me. It's yeah. uh, Saw my TI, said, hey, if you see the TACP recruiter, I'm super interested in talking to him. And then just never heard from him. So I'm going to be an F-16 crew chief, whatever. I'm in the military. I'm getting a paycheck. The world's going around. Yeah. 
And then, uh, then the TACP recruiter comes around and uh, the TI calls me over and says, hey, if you're interested, uh, go, go meet me at this barracks mm-hmm. at, uh, at six o'clock tomorrow morning, seven o'clock, whatever it was. Got the recruiting spill and was like, man, I'm in. Like they're, they're showing videos of A-10s, you know, oh, yeah. killing tanks and bombs dropping and things blowing up. I was like, man, that sounds way more fun than, than Turner Wrenches on a flight line. A hundred percent more fun. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that guy went and pulled my paperwork from being an F-16 crew chief after it had already been submitted and pushed me to the TACP line. Nice. Wow. A little saving grace there, huh? Oh, I'm so thankful for that guy. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, your life could have been on a totally different trajectory. I know a lot of people who have ended up in that category and, and never really made it back out of that. Sure. It's unfortunate. but So you uh, got picked up as a TACP and you go through all your training. Uh, typical pipeline. It, obviously, it's changed quite a bit in the last 20 plus years, right? Yeah. So uh, for me, when I came through, there wasn't really a pipeline, right? Mm-hmm. Like you graduated basic, you went to tech school, uh, you were awaiting until your class started, and then you went through, I think it was three or four months okay. uh, that we went through. Um, that was all you did. You did the three-level course, and then you got pushed out to your assignment. Okay. Um, and this is what, 98? No, this is 2001. Two, so, 2001. Okay. So yeah. Uh, I guess I left that out. Uh, May 15, 2001 is when I shipped okay. uh, for, for basic. So yeah, good cool. timing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> go, go join this job that yeah. is, you know, a wartime job. Yep. And then lo and behold, you know, four months later yep. and we're at war. So uh, definitely was a, an interesting thing. I, I will never forget being at Herbert Field, being at the Reef Chow Hall, having just gotten done with PT and sitting down and staring at that TV going, man, what kind of moron flies an airplane into a building? Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then we see the second one. Yep. And yeah. at that point, Herbert Field goes on, you know, lockdown. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. And uh, and everybody's, you know, freaking out. Um, we had a guy in our class that was from New York. He had family that worked in the Trade Center. So, you know, he's oh, yeah. he's trying to get in touch with family members and whatnot. So definitely uh, definitely set the tone for the, the next 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. How are you? Do you remember how you were feeling at the time? Was that settling in for you that, hey, I just joined a combat job when we we're not in a wartime and now it's it's starting to get real, right? Yeah, so so I don't think it did, Okay. right? Um, and the reason I say that is there's lots of, lots of people think they will know how they feel when something happens mm-hmm. uh, until it actually happens and you don't know, right? Like, yep. But in hindsight, we like to pretend like we do know exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's just human nature. 99 yeah. out of 100 Americans will tell you exactly what would happen if a gun, you know, if, if a gun was shot at them. Um, may, maybe they're right, right? Maybe they've had some training. Maybe they know what's going on. Yeah. Maybe Probably they not. Don't. Maybe yeah. they buckle and they're in a little ball, you know, behind the desk. Yeah, um, likely. <laughs> so, until it happens, you just don't necessarily know. You it's know? true. So, so no, it didn't set on me that I'm in a combat AFSC, you know, war is happening. Mm-hmm. Like we are going to be front players in this war oh, yeah. uh, for, for the next 20 years. Like, yeah, I would have never, never in a million years guessed that that's the, uh, that's what my career would look like. Hmm. Yeah. So up until that point, how, like what was the difference in training pre and post 9-11? Like there, there, I've hear, heard this story from numerous people is that that training environment pre-war was completely different. You know, now you're going into you know, Iraq's an urban environment, it's a mountainous terrain into Afghanistan. The tactics have had to shift from what used to be a lot of like uh, woods type training. So out in the woods, Vietnam-esque, right? That's right. Yeah, so 
so again, I don't have the luxury of it. I graduated the pipe or I graduated tech school uh, October of 2001. So everything I oh, know yeah. is the, hey man, we're going to Afghanistan uh, and then, you know, Iraq d- okay. down the road. So, sure. you know, yeah, you heard those stories, right? You know, you had, um, it. it's interesting because it's, you know, history kind of repeats itself, right? And we're kind of on the verge of another one of these lulls where, where we're not training for combat, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So, you know, there's there was instructors that we had that all of their, you know, war stories, if you will, were when they went to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, right? Like that's, yeah. that was their experience because, man, in the eight years that they had leading up to it, they didn't have anything that they were getting after necessarily. environment. Exactly. You know, uh, the big thing for a squadron was the competition. Man, you guys are going to put together a team and they're going to train and they're going to represent our organization in the in the worldwide competition. Yeah. And man, you better crush it. You know, like that was the the idea um, it was, it was a lot of, um, you know, IP to target running type stuff, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, Hey, uh, you know, we would call it high threat cast. So you got to be in the weeds. You got to come in, you got to take out, you know, your SA six or whatever the air threat was. Mm-hmm. And then you can get up there comfortable in a wheel overhead and start picking off targets, so on and so forth. You know, um, one of the things that you guys, you know, we were talking a little bit about earlier with the munitions, uh, Man, there, there's, you think about like World War II and the, the, um, the amount of civilians that were impacted by things that the army was doing, things that the air force was doing, so on and so yeah. forth. You know, our precision has become the focal point, right? Like you can't afford to wound a civilian or let some effects happen, so on and so forth. Absolutely. So, you know, transitioning from like, hey, yeah, used to, we could throw 500, you know, you know, 500 pound dumb bombs, we could throw six of them down in an area and like, yeah, it'll take care of what it needs to, no big deal to, mm-hmm. no, 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 we have to put this one bomb through this one window uh, and, and delay fuse it maybe so that it doesn't have an effect on the rest of the room. Yeah. So trying to transition from, you know, the, if you will, general purpose generation to like, man, we got to be precise mm-hmm. uh, became, became a huge focus point. And watching the technology evolve with that had to be pretty interesting, right? Because those requirements are driving the technology to change along with it. Did you did you see that there was a crossover with that, or some maybe maybe overlap with the technology not being able to catch up to your requirements, or or vice versa, that the technology being better than you guys needed at the time? Yeah, so there there was a bit of that, right? When you're trying to uh, you know initially you're trying to drop a JDAM, but mm. you don't have any GPS type stuff, so I can pull a, a, an MGRS, you know, ten digit grid, eight digit grid mm. that that gives me an idea where this thing needs to go. Well, now I've got to convert that to the appropriate lat long for the appropriate platform yeah. that's carrying this thing. Um, you know, to to say like technology has absolutely made our job so much easier these days because they're seeing, you know, hey, this is what we need. And, and the ability for industry and other folks to come out and put it together. Yeah. It's it's amazing. You know, things like Roberts Ridge, you know, if if that team had had some of the things available to them. To be able to just see what was around them, yeah. man, it, it could have been a different story, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, Map and Compass was what we what we worked on back in the day, yeah. you know? It was... Limited to the technology of your time. That so how it. accurate would you say it is? Fly on the wall, one meter, 10 meters, 100 meters. Nowadays. Oh, nowadays, it's... It, you can get to the one meter range easy. Yeah. Um, and, and depending on how much time you have and, and, you know, what resources you have to look at it. Yeah, I mean, almost fly on the wall. You know what I mean? Depending on what munition and what time. I mean, just a decade ago when both of us served, it was like 
to the 10 meters, you know, mm-hmm. you got 10 meters. <laughs> yeah. And that's just a decade ago, 10 meters. Now you can't, that's too much of a mar- margin of error nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's like one meter, right? Eight right. to 10 digit grids. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Fly in the wall from, you know, 30,000 feet up, you know? That's right. It's incredible. So when was your first deployment? I'm assuming pretty shortly after. So surprisingly, it wasn't, right? So my first assignment, I got to go to uh, to Fort Carson uh, and I was with a um, an armored cavalry regiment. Okay. Uh, not a lot of armored cavalry getting pushed into the mountains of Afghanistan. Um, and, and even then, right, I was a young guy. I was a three level. I wasn't a terminal attack controller qualified mm-hmm. person yet. Like I still had, you know, mission qualification training and upgrade training, stuff like that, that I had to get done. Sure. Um, so it wasn't till uh, the Iraq invasion okay. that uh, that we went. Um, you know, funny how you can remember certain things. The day after my 21st birthday is the day that we got on the plane uh, to push <laughs> out to Iraq. Uh, Chachi was with us on that one. Um, yeah. So we went and we staged in Kuwait for a while and then, and then made the drive up to Baghdad and, and over to, to Al-Assad Air Base uh, to kick that off. Um, so that was the first of many deployments. Again, I wasn't a, a terminal attack qualified guy, but back then... Uh, the number of radios you had to carry, the number of batteries you had to carry, the number of things, like it was just almost humanly impossible for one person to do all those things. So mm-hmm. we would go out in a two-man team. Uh, okay. One one guy's actually controlling the airplanes, the other guy's, you know, driving the truck or, you know, helping build nine lines so that he's ready to strike, so on and so forth. So, gotcha. uh, yeah, my first deployment was not as a uh, terminal attack controller. Um Came home, went to school, got qualified, and went back later that year uh, as a as a you know back then it was enlisted terminal attack controller. Nowadays it's it's joint terminal yeah. attack controller. JTAC now. So, what was the difference like between those those two deployments? Obviously, you were helping assist. Uh, I'm sure the other person was a, a JTAC at that point, right? The person you're helping assist. That's right. Is is qualified? So you go from that assistant assisting position to a fully qualified position and redeploy the same year. What is that difference like for you now? Do you, did you feel prepared to to take on those responsibilities or? So I did. Um, you know, I had the I had the good fortune. You know, I I got advice when I was at tech school, like, hey, when you get to your unit, uh, don't say no, mm. right? Always have your bags packed yep. and and be ready to do whatever. Um, I mean, I think I had been there three days, and uh, there was a Humvee headed out to Airburst Range to go control some casts. Yeah, and somebody's like, "Hey, we got an empty seat in the back. If you want to go, I was, I mean, I'm not passing up an opportunity." Yeah, um, and that just kind of that kind of stayed the whole time. So you know, it used to be that you would get a ton of controls before you could go to school. School was kind of the you know check the box. Yep, he's he's good. And then you go back, you do a handful more controls and you get qualified. Mm-hmm. So I had a ton of controls before I went to school, before I went on that deployment. Okay. So, I mean, I, I would say to do the job, like I felt comfortable to be able to do the job, even if, you know, that ETAC had gotten wounded or shot, something like that, mm-hmm. to pick up the radio and be able to talk to the airplanes. Um, and I, I had confidence in that skill set. So, okay. so coming back the second time, uh, the difference is... Now I don't have that senior guy above me that's doing all the planning with the, uh, you know, with the jock and and those yeah. guys. And um, it's all on you. Yeah. And you have to, you have to ask for the, you know, planes, you have to put the plan together. You have to go brief the maneuver element, what's going on. And and man, that's a, that was this, that was the spot that man, as an E4, I'm having to tell O5s like, Hey, that's not the way to use air power. That's yep. not the way for us to to employ this thing. 
Uh, and that that can get stressful at times, but that that's the main difference, I would say. Sure. And that is a pretty unique position that you guys are in, given you're uniquely the, the only Air Force asset attached to Army groups like that. So the amount of responsibility that's placed on you guys is pretty significant, in my opinion, compared to most other enlisted jobs, especially as far as the Army's concerned. I mean, when, when's an O5 ever talking to an E4 in the Army? Right. It's, it's <laughs> never going to happen. Like, you're never going to see that. Whereas with the Air Force, that's, uh, I guess it's a little bit more common. A little bit more commonplace, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> now you're the only army guy here. I know. But I, ours is a ranger. We do our own thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we have FOs. That's right. So tell me the difference between an FO and a TACP. Yeah. So, uh, you know, an FO is a, it, it becomes a, a clearance type of thing, right? So, um, you can read a map and you can, you know, pull grids and you can tell me what the train looks like, hmm. but you're not necessarily the most savvy on what weaponry looks like, what aircraft employment looks like, hmm. you know, things of that nature. So, you know, an FO, you know, Ford Observer, like hmm. they're out there in a place, you know, the TACP community, um, JTACs in general, they're a high demand, low density resource, hmm. right? So, uh, you may have one at a battalion, uh, not necessarily with the Rangers. They do, like you said, they do their own thing. <laughs> uh, but but a conventional army battalion, you may have one or two qualified terminal attack controllers to cover, you know, three companies yeah. that are maneuvering at the same time. So, you know, we would try to do our best to go, hey, this is the most dangerous or most likely, you know, who's going to get in contact. Let's put a guy with them. Limited resource kind of That's thing. Right. Mm. And honestly, kind of a godsend on... I mean, honestly, from hearing these kind of stories from the tactics that we've talked to along the way, I do have to ask myself the question, you know, we should take away the pride a little bit and incorporate TACPs into a ranger attack element. Because one, I think I said a story earlier on this. I almost got killed. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell the story. It's a phenomenal story. So I'm in Af- yeah. Afghanistan at this time. We're, you know, going after an HVT. It was like our third follow-on mission, uh, which we're all tired and worn mm-hmm. out. And we're, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was in a kind of just an overwatch position of this target. And, you know, sure as shit, all hell breaks loose. So, you know, we got squirters off the ejecta. Everybody's running away. And one guy just uphill tries to evade. You know, <laughs> Smart. Yeah. And like, I mean, we're all just, you know, being rangers and going black on all our ammunition, trying to get <laughs> capture this guy. Probably laughing too much. And, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they, they called in a JDAM. So our FO calls in uh, fire support for this guy going up the hill. And <laughs> he's just evading everything. It's pretty funny. And so it hits, boom, you see the flash, and then you just see this glowing red whatever coming at me, you know? And sure as shit, we're all just like dive into the dirt, and it goes right above our heads and lands like, you know, 50 feet behind us. It's this big ninja star, like just piece of shrapnel. Yikes. And we actually hauled this thing about this big um, back home and hung it on our wall. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know I mean? And uh, yeah, but it's could have used a tech P probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Right. Um, or just like maybe not 500 pounds for one dude. <laughs> yeah. 
or or you know taking cover when the bomb was coming in like that's another yeah, that's, that's right <laughs> i got to watch it go off <laughs> yeah, it's fireworks uh, baby it's, it is funny how many times you see the cameras come out you're like guys this there's still a firefight yeah. <laughs> everyone's pulling up polaroids and got to got to get the footage yeah, yeah never yeah. never miss the shot yeah oh, never miss man. that shot so walk us through uh, a challenging mission that you've been on Oh, challenging. Um, I know that's always a tougher question. Well, so so one of the first that I legitimately got into, you know, a, a firefight, you know, mm. contact type situation was uh, a straight like basketball pickup game, right? So I'm in Afghanistan and I'm there uh, to, to do Karzai uh, personal protection at times and then uh, man, work strikes uh, from a jock, right? Okay. So not necessarily a guy that, that is attached to any one maneuver element or anything like that. And uh, we got we got info that uh, there was a special troops battalion that was going to go conduct a meet in a place that we haven't been in a really long time mm-hmm. that was swarming with bad guys. So they brought it to us, uh, went and talked to the boss, said, hey, uh, what do you think? He said, man, go take go take a listen, right? Go, go listen to the intel brief. Go, you know, see what's going on. Uh, and then come back and tell me what you think. I said, all right. Uh, went, listened to the brief. And um, if they were right, there's 150 to 200 fighters in the valley. If they were wrong, there's no fighters in the valley. <laughs> uh, I told the boss, I said, hey, if this goes sideways, I would much rather be out there with them uh, than trying to get everything secondhand and control it from back here in the jock uh, in an effort to try and, and get them out there. So makes sense. We're out there and we're up in the hillside and, uh, you know, the guys get to the meet and nobody's there. Mm. Right? Big surprise. Yeah. Right. So, uh, been a little bit of contact. Uh, we had a, a north south screening element, an east west screening element. North south element was in contact. You know, we could hear the, the, uh, Mark 19 going off, some mm. of that. Uh, in comms with them, like, no, no big deal. They're okay. They've got everything covered. Um, just, you know, some, some pop shots out from a field, whatever. Sure. So I've got the uh, I've got a B one overhead. Uh, I even pushed the B one of those guys on their freaks. Said, "Hey, check in with them because I'm having trouble, you know, creating that comm link." Um, no issues, right? B one can't really do a whole lot for them at that time. Uh, B one checks off because it's time for us to, to head back. Been no activity, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we got some we got some intel that the folks were planning the attack. So, all right, cool, whatever. Uh, so the north-south element stays up there. Uh, the the blue element, the command element left. And then we pile all of us into the last couple Humvees to get yeah. out of there. And of course, they wait to the last couple Humvees to open up a near-side ambush on us. Sure. Uh, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they, right? <laughs> so we're in, the, we're in the back of the convoy, obviously. Um, I think I'm in the middle vehicle, if I recall correctly. Um, the front vehicle gets disabled. So we're in up armors. Um, but but you want to talk about complicated? Uh, try trying to talk off an embitter through an up armored Humvee, uh, and and you know I was in the back seat. We had a gunner that was doing gunner things, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So we're trying to to hand up, you know, again Mark nineteen, uh, love that thing. But man, trying to hand up Mark nineteen rounds to this guy so he can reload and and things of that nature. So uh, like that was my first real experience of you know kind of oh shit, yeah, um, and then absolutely helpless. Right, we're yeah, in Afghanistan jammers are running, left. Yeah. right. So I'm I'm throwing out calls in the blind to try and get people to to get some assets for us, uh, and, and I do. I get a couple A10s that come in, so we get into a, a security posture. Um, 
and uh, we we get to employ, but uh, absolutely helpless, sitting in the back of that Humvee, yeah. looking at yeah people shooting at us. Our gunners are getting after it, uh, and then to know that two out of our three trucks were disabled. Oh, by the way, like we were the last three trucks. So oh, yeah, you know if no there's asset. a follow on force, if there's something else in in front of us, you know that that team that's going to have to come back to get us is um is going to have to fight their way to us, not just just cruise. Yeah. So. Turns out, you know, the A-10s checked in and and everybody decides that they wanna they wanna stop shooting at that point. So, you know, the the element coming back to us didn't didn't meet any resistance. Um we take care of business and then we head out, getting shot at the entire way out of the valley. Uh again, uh the A-10s had had an in-flight emergency. Uh so hey, the shooting had stopped. Like yeah. I can't really ask that, you know, you send me some other planes, other people in the theater need it. Um we get out of the valley. And uh, and I see some Apaches uh, hanging out. And thank God there was a uh, there was a frequency that I could pull them up on, uh, and they provided armed Overwatch for us. And then you know the the last thing that happens is we kind of you know catch our breath. We've got all the elements together. Uh, I see these dudes have a guy on a stretcher. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Hmm. Uh, and it turned out you know the smart gunner that he was wanted to be super alert that day and decided to drink like four Red Bulls or Rippets or whatever it was we had. <laughs> the Rippets. Yeah. And, and no Shotgunning water, Rippets. Right? Like, yeah. So the guy is going into shock catted, uh, uh, because he, he catted out uh, here. Uh, <laughs> so finally we get... What was uh, his name? Private what? No. <laughs> God. Uh, lucky for us, we were, I mean, we were a two or three minute helicopter flight from Bagram. Uh, so they, the Apaches were able to get me a medevac bird out there. We got this guy in the medevac bird and then, and then we got what back. What a burden. Yeah. Yeah. And your at, contingent. After a firefight. A burden. It's a rip it overdose is what he gets medevac for. That's right. That's, um, that's strong. <laughs> that honestly is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I, I've picked up some people from some pretty embarrassing shit in the past. That's embarrassing, but it also could potentially get your team killed because you aren't taking care. You're you're the weakest link. Congratulations. I mean, I, I picked up more than one, more than one Marine in Afghanistan for attempting to pleasure themselves using CLP because yeah, it's got lubricant in the name. Quality. Yeah, that is. It uh, doesn't work. It doesn't, it does not work. It's not the right lube. <laughs> it's not. True, true story. If you want to talk about horrible medevacs, that's uh, oh my that's God. probably bottom tier right there. Yeah, <laughs> so bottom tier. Let me ask you, because I've seen this before, and I'll tell you what: seeing that A10 come in and doing its work mm. is one of the coolest and most exciting and terrifying displays of what we're capable of. Like, how did that feel calling that thing in? Yeah, so it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> it, it was great. It turned out that, yeah. uh, you know, it was both the the lead pilot and then uh, mine's first, like, combat employment uh, for Cass. All so, at the same time. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Um, but, and Apaches. That's double whammy. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Amanda Apaches are awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, the A-10 and that gun going off, like... I, I understand why nobody wanted to shoot at us anymore. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and it's oh, it echoes through that valley, that yeah. valley so well. Yeah, psychological war. It's classified as psychological warfare yeah. for a reason. <laughs> yeah, it, I uh, just I'm I'm sad that they do not authorize any painting on aircraft anymore. 
as far as you're talking like like the, the kills. You remember and, oh, the yeah. teeth on those things that they painted on the eight tens? Yeah. yeah, I don't know if they still have those or not. They're not authorized anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not authorized to paint on those things. Mm. I'm like, talk about psychological warfare. You see a dragon coming at you. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's <laughs> oh, shit. breathing it's fire. Some silly decisions, right? Like, what difference does it make that an A10 has teeth painted on it or not? You know what I mean? Well, like, uh, honestly, that's. It's it's supposed to terrify you. That's right. Are we supposed to be professional? That's as this thing's like coming at us. Like, oh. oh, it looks lovely. Yeah. The paint job. Yeah. There's no paint job on there. Um, nice neutral maybe, tones. Maybe like a, a Joker smiley face on there instead. I don't. Yeah. Know. That'd yeah. be yeah. That'd be kind of that'd be better. Mm. I'd like that a smiley face. <laughs> smiley face is across relaxed there. before we employ on you. Yeah. I had a. Um, oh, this is comforting. <laughs> I, I was sitting at a QRF on an airfield, wait waiting to be spun up, and uh, one. An Apache helicopter did its hover test and mm. stared at me on purpose, <laughs> I think. I, I mean, this thing was hunt- so close. And it did its hover. And I was like, man, if I was on the opposite end of that as an enemy, I would shit myself. Right. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Legitimately. They're uh, awesome. I tell you, though, little birds mm. and their ability to, oh, yeah. those, uh, you know, they got great. pods. Yeah. yeah. And like your feet dangling off those <clears> just going off. Oh, man, that is, that's intense. And they're wicked fast, too. They fast. are. Yeah, that was a that was a sad day when they retired the little birds and the the Kiowa. Well, it's they, okay. Houston SWAT team actually has two little birds. <laughs> Did you know that? Nice. Probably not employing the same way, but uh, yeah, <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> rad. They are. Who knows? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a damn war zone. Yeah, yeah, damn war zone yeah. in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> Houston. That's crazy. So yeah, that's got to be uh, powerful but scary at the same time. It's your yeah. first introduction. And what better way to be introduced to the military than being ambushed? That's right. Um, it, it, but, you know, the old cliche, right? Like training takes over. Mm-hmm. Like it, yeah. it did, right? Like it, there wasn't time to be like, oh, you know, let's let's worry about what's going to happen. It's like, man, get the airplanes here. And like, that's yep. your job. That's what we're paying you to do. You know, get it done. Yep. You know, that this particular one, uh, because it was a pickup game, the, the uh, ground force commander wasn't used to having me attached to him. Hmm. So he's, you know, a ranger tab guy and he's got his NCO that's ranger tabbed and they're getting ready to mount this assault to go through this, you know, field or whatever. And uh, like I had already asked for planes, right? Like I took a little liberty and didn't ask him, like I realized the situation. And uh, as about, you know, about the time he's getting ready to start on this foot patrol, it dawned on him like, oh, hey, I've got this other guy. Like maybe we don't have to go walk into this shit show and and potentially put somebody at risk. Yeah. Uh, So... Yeah, it was, it was just another day on the range at, at that point. It's funny. Yeah, it's it's funny how th- you do fall back to the training, especially when it kicks off like that in a surprise. And I mean, that's why they spend so much money training you guys to the level that they do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to I want to move forward a little bit. So I mean, you've been on nine deployments, is what you said, that's right. right? That's a significant amount. Was it mostly Middle East, or have you all of it? All all, all Middle it. East. That's right. Right. See the world, they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there, was there, uh, when was your most recent deployment or when was your uh, last the, one? So I think it was what? When did ISIS flare up? 14, 15? 14, yeah. 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 So uh, we went in as part of the, the crew mm. to uh, go out and do the assessments on the security forces and things of that nature to decide, you know, who's not corrupt, who is, mm. like, who can we partner with and, and basically opened up the, the theater again. So that was, that was my last, last trip. Okay, been a while, and since then you've been primarily taking care of training training duties here in uh, here at Lackland or, or uh, Chapman Annex, I guess, right? Randolph, 
So I'm at Randolph now. Yeah. So when we got done there, uh, I think that was 15. I came back at the end of 15. I went over to the the special tactics training squadron on Herbie. Okay. Uh, did a little bit of time there. I did some recruiting assessment and selection stuff, mm-hmm. did uh, some op soup time, uh, some training shop time, and then uh, got picked up to come out here to Chapman Annex. Okay. I was at Chapman for about 16 months and then got an opportunity to go work for the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. Oh, awesome. Uh, worked for that for about a year and then uh, been doing assignments the rest of the time. How was the uh, AFW2? That's what they that's call right. it, right? How, how was working for that? I mean, that's relatively new program that they've stood up in the past few years. Yeah, so it's it's been around for a while. You know, a lot of people will, uh, you say Wounded Warrior, they think Wounded Warrior Project mm-hmm. or, the, or yeah. some of the nonprofit type stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's an Air Force funded, you know, federally funded, you know, congressionally mandated program mm-hmm. that, uh, that really is just there to take care of airmen, you know, in their, in their worst times. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it was hugely rewarding. Mm. Right. Because you get to, at, at that point when, when I was there, I was given the opportunity, uh, to swing way, way above my pay grade. Right. Okay. So I was an E8 there. Uh, but the, the placement, I had access to all the command chiefs and, and folks of that nature mm-hmm. um, because we'd get a message, you know, Johnny's having issues with X, yeah, right? And you could try and call their squadron SEL and, and maybe you get through to that guy or you don't, mm-hmm. uh, but you had access when you weren't getting the answers or the, or the things that you needed to take care of an airman. Yeah. I mean, you could go get to the right person to get that airman taken care of. Mm-hmm. So uh, absolutely amazing uh, opportunity to, to take care of folks and and just you know, transitioning is a difficult thing when you're a normal person, you're going to transition. Yep. Man, if you're going through a, a med board process or, or things of that nature where maybe you thought you were going to have a 20-year career and now you're out in four years because you got a, you know, a, a terrible diagnosis or something of that nature. Yeah. Man, like it, the program is there to help guide you along and then try and set you up for success. So it's it's awesome to see what they get to do for our folks. And, and I, I'll, I'll back you on that because I, I've, I've worked with the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program uh, Pretty, pretty significantly uh, during my exit from the military. But there is no other military section, I guess, that I've ever dealt with that offers individualistic care like that program did. I mean, you get you get a project manager who manages your entire case or a case manager, I mm-hmm. guess would be the actual verbiage for it. But they truly care and they go out of their way for individualistic care. I've never found that at any other point in the military, even when seeking medical treatment, it, it came down to, well, we'll put you in when we can get you in. That program, they called me once a week when I, when I was transitioning out to make sure I had everything that I needed. They offered, I mean, I, was, I got 30 or 40 emails a week with different programs that were going on in the area. So, I mean, kudos to you for, for working on that program because I, I truly think it is one of the best transition transitional programs uh, and, and programs in the military, like specifically. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you went from uh, doing that and then moved over to Randolph from there, I'm assuming? Yeah, so AFW2 is actually at Randolph. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, I went from one building to the second floor uh, on the building next door mm-hmm. and started working assignments for our guys. Okay, so now you manage, that's big picture stuff, right? Uh, generally speaking, right? So I, I have uh, all of the TACP, combat control, pararescue, uh, special reconnaissance, and then we just picked up uh, seer specialists. Okay. So I, I manage all of those assignments uh, for all the E8s and below uh, okay. across the Air Force. Since you mentioned it, special reconnaissance, this is a new career field for the Air Force. They transitioned the the old combat weather guys into special reconnaissance, right? That's right. So they were combat weather for a while, turned into Southie. Southie mm-hmm. uh, has now turned into special reconnaissance. What can you can you dive into special reconnaissance a little bit? Because that's something that we haven't really covered here, and I'm just curious 
what their actual position is and how it's changed. Obviously, they're no longer weathermen. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what their actual role is because it's not something I'm, I've experienced yet. Yeah, so it's one of those things that uh, like it's not, there's no doctrine to it yet. Right? Okay. Like they're, they're, you know, building the plane while it's flying, mm. if you will. Um, you know, weathermen was probably a disservice to them because guys would go out and they were doing many other things besides weather, yeah. you know. Um, and then, you know, it, it has the potential to be one of the coolest jobs that we're going to have in special warfare, right? Like you think about special reconnaissance and the mm-hmm. things that you can do with special reconnaissance. Um, you know, you, you almost think of it as the most well-rounded uh, operator versus, yeah. hey, I'm a JTAC and hey, you're a survey guy and hey, you're a medic. Like, yeah. Oh man, I, I get to do close target recognition, you know, or I get to do, you know, I get to go out and see what the depths of these rivers are to know if we could bring in boats to mm. do this thing that we're trying to do down the road to, to you name it. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, how each of them are being employed at different times is, is kind of up to, to who's got them and what they can, uh, and what the mission set is that they need to do right now. But man, I, I would probably be doing you a disservice if I was to go, Hey, here's the yeah. 12 things that they are, they are set to be great at right now. Okay. It sounds more of, more of a generalist position that falls under special operations still. That's right. Yeah. I guess we'll see the evolution over the next couple of years too. Interestingly enough, it's going to be a topic of subject for how modern warfare affects that as well. Like depths of a, of a river, for instance. We could do that with lasers now. That's right. You know what I mean? So like how to implement that and change it up and how it's going to change in the future. You know, what, what's, where do you see it going without obviously getting, diving too deep into OPSEC? Yeah, so I, I mean, when you, when you talk about special operations and things of that nature, like I think there's always going to be boots some sort of boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether that's relationship building, you know, um, even, even training partner forces, right? Like, man, that's what SF was once upon a time, was yeah. go in and, and train the guerrilla force, force to be able to do whatever they need to do, yeah. et cetera. You know, so there's going to be opportunities like that, you know, as, as just the nature changes. I think that's where we're going to be just locked into, though, is special operations. That's right. Like, you know, everything else is going to be outsourced by, you know, droned equipment or satellite imagery, things like of that nature. There's always going to be a need for physical boots on the ground, in my opinion. 100%, 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. Unless we get robots and we just drop them in. Also down for that. Space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I want. The, the finger of God. Space ranger. Yeah. We've been, oh, you are a space ranger or you're not about yet, to be. Not yet. About We're to not be. We're not going to talk about it yet. You're about to be. <laughs> the Sounds first official. Yes. <laughs> so that's amazing. So, you know, amazing career field. We probably dove so in-depth into what it is to be a tech P, which is amazing. I think that's beneficial for our, our audience. But there's more work that you do. That's right. Mm. The TAC P Foundation. That's right. I want to take the remaining time we have to talk about the work that you do there. Obviously, you know, through the Air Force's Wounded Warrior Program, you're able to facilitate a lot of that, taking care of airmen that, you know, haven't had that in the past. What do you do at the TACP Foundation? Yeah, so uh, the TACP Foundation, you know, it uh, it is meant, you know, in big picture things, it's, it's complimentary, right? Because mm-hmm. the Air Force is still going to do things for survivors of, you know, folks that are lost in combat, lost in training, this, that, and the other. Yeah. Um, but but they don't do it like we do it, right? So, you know, what, what we've learned in these small teams, right? Like you grow up and it, it becomes brothers, right? It's not coworkers. It's not, 
you know, Johnny over there, you know, even, even when we deploy and we go with an ODA or things of that nature, like our goal is to make them bring us in as part of the family type yeah. thing. So you get that real tight knit bond, you know, you get the, the, we can bicker with each other, but don't you try to come in because yeah. then we're all going to form the shield and, and come at you kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, in 2010, uh, we lost Brad Smith, right? And uh, one of the things that we had had is we had a, a TACP association mm-hmm. back then. It was a, a C-19 veteran run type organization. And, you know, there's some guys, you know, funny enough, we're standing around all the, the or sitting around all the black rifle stuff. Guys like JT mm-hmm. that were down at our, our TACP schoolhouse at the time and said, man, like we are not taking care of our folks like we could. We could be better than what we are right now. Yeah. And, and they started to put together a plan, right? Charlie Keyball, you know, some of these other guys, they all got in a room and they, uh, they go, man, how can we take care of our people better than what we are doing, you know? And, and they just started brainstorming, right? They started bringing together, you know, uh, resources and and assets and things of that nature. And and man, the the TACP association took off, right? Mm -hmm. So in 2010, right, we kind of course corrected and, and started moving out in that direction. Um, about 2015, 16 timeframe, I got involved with the association. Okay. And, uh, man, Charlie Keyball was running it. I was trying to, uh, trying to help him out, trying to take things off his plate. Um, and he decides at the end, uh, I think it was the end of 15 that, uh, he was going to step down and wanted me to be the president of the association. Okay. And I was like, whoa, man, like, no. <laughs> like kind of active duty dude here still got, yeah. got other things going on. So we, uh, Kind of blindly, I took it and, and started running the association. Um, well, we fast forward. Uh, I, I go to step down from the association. Chachi was my vice at the time. Chachi yeah. takes it over. And uh, we, we kind of have an offsite. And we realized that there was an opportunity missing to better take care of our, our folks, mm. right? So uh, at Salt Lake Airport, over a beer, we decided, hey, man, we need to stand up the TACP Foundation uh, and have a a parallel organization to our association that can go out and do things a little bit differently. So, uh, so we do it. We stand up the foundation. Uh, we go through the process to become a, a C3. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we tried to take it and we want to do more of the professionalized things. We want to do more of the the predictable long-term things. And, and that's what we did, right? Okay. So, you know, our association or excuse me, our foundation, like one of the key things is keeping the Gold Star family members involved, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, for the the folks that I've met, you know, in, in the the worst of times, you know, I always I always feel bad when I say it to them, but but I mean it a hundred percent. You know, somebody that just lost their husband just gains, you know, fifteen hundred active duty, you know, men that are going to be able to step in and help out when you need the garbage, uh, you know, picked up around the house or something. Yeah. You need this light bulb replaced, so on and so forth. So, you know these kids, these kids are growing up without their father because man, he laid it out and, uh, and paid the ultimate sacrifice for the country, yeah. man, we can be there and we can do things for them, uh, as they continue to grow, grow up and whatnot. So, so the foundation, uh, does that for our gold star children, right? Like we have a program where, uh, we step in where, where dad would have stepped in, mm. uh, generally speaking. Right. So when they turn 16, we cut them a check to help them get their first car because man, dad would have been there to help them get on, get yeah. in their set of wheels and, and get that thing going. You know, uh, when they turn 18, we cut them another check uh, because man, they need to, to set up an apartment or they're going to college yeah. and, you know, need a little bit of spending money in the account or whatnot. And then, and then we try to catch them uh, sometime around 25, right? Uh, graduating college, 
buying a house, yeah. getting married, like all things that dad would have been around for, man, we're going to have some sort of uh, footprint in that life and continued touch point. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge one that, yeah. that we do. You know, we, we call it uh tack P for life. Um, so that's, that's a sliver of it. You know, we're starting to get into the transition stuff. Okay. You know, having worked with AFW too, man, I got to see like their empowerment and transition and, and how you can take a demographic, right. And tailor things towards them. Yes. Man, an air force special warfare, uh, special warfare guy, it's going to write a, a resume a little bit different than a personnelist is mm-hmm. going to write, you know what I mean? And then how do you capture things like stress tolerance and drive and things of that nature that a lot of people want in their organization, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it's not what the Air Force has us report on on a constant basis, right? Yeah. So so trying to figure out ways to, to continue to give back to the TACP community uh, and set them up for success as they go. Um, and we got a memorial stone uh, program so that we try to put a memorial stone. I think we put three, maybe I think the fourth one goes in uh this summer, okay. Um, we're trying to put memorial stones at each of the ASOSs, right? Because, you know, uh, we like to say that that you die twice, right? Once when you go into the ground and then once when people stop saying your name. Yep. Well, man, we want TACPs for generations to be able to look at that and, and remember those guys uh, and keep their name alive, you know? Mm. So, I mean, th- those are those are kind of the main programs. We, we also do scholarships, right? We give four $3,000 scholarships away to, to family members and, and folks connected to the TACP community. Uh, and I, I would tell you we're, we're okay right now, right? We're trying to get to great. Like there's lots of things on the horizon where we'll get from yeah. okay to good and good yep. to great, uh, in, in order to give back to the tech P community. So, uh, it's been, it's been pretty, uh, been pretty rewarding, uh, to be able to take care of a community, uh, especially when it's, it's in a lot of the worst circumstances at times. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that, you know, these, these family members, the, the children and, and wives are losing their husbands or, or their fathers. And you guys all step in to continue and take that beyond what likely could have been the end of their career, right? If they're making it to that point when the kid's turning 18, they're not going to see the foundation or they're not going to see that continuation beyond into their into their lives like their father would be there. So for you guys to step in and, and really take that to another level and continually give that care for long term, that, that's pretty amazing. And for you to just use that, uh, call that good. I think you guys are already in the great category, but thanks. I, I can't wait to see what, uh, when you call yourself great, where you guys are going to be at then. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's phenomenal. We uh, appreciate you continuing to serve, you know, three more years in the military and you're still doing great things on the outside and given more and more. That's incredible. We, we love hearing those stories. We love, uh, first of all, where can we find you guys? Yeah, so we've got a website, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, tacpfoundation.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can follow us there. Um, LinkedIn, we're on there. Um, and follow the TACP Foundation page. We do memorial toasts for guys. We do, you know, if you want information about what's going on, yeah. uh, Facebook and LinkedIn are probably the two easiest ways uh, to, to figure out where we're at and what's going on. Perfect. That's incredible. Well, man, you have been an incredible guest. Thank you so much for diving into some of the details and your story. We appreciate it. And uh, man, you rock. You just rock, dude. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. This has been the Medevac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Please uh, don't forget to check out the TACP Foundation and uh, reach out to Marcus if you have any questions about how you can support. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.